Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. All right. Hi, listeners. This is Season 4, Episode 5, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name is Rick. I'm author of Spiritual Grit and the Jesus-Centered Life and general editor of the Jesus-Centered Bible. And we are in a two-month pursuit that we're calling the newness of you, not the newtness of you. I guess that would be, in what ways do you look like a newt? But that's not what this is. It's the newness of you. And we're trying to capitalize on the on this on-ramp into 2019, where we're thinking about a sort of universal craving that we have, that we could somehow, some way, be a better version of who we are. So the, usually the way that we pursue questions like that is by trying harder, bearing down, persisting more, and then finding out our well of strength is actually quite shallow. So there's a reason that sort of self-directed, self-focused I can pull myself up on my own sort of uh, pathway almost always crashes and burns because we weren't made to live that way. We were made to live in close connection to Jesus, gaining from his strength as we face things that are too much for us and sometimes face things that aren't too much for us, but sure feel like it in the moment. So, so how can Jesus be a catalyst for transformation in our lives? And we thought the best way to explore that would be to explore encounters he had with people that ended up transformed uh, because of that encounter. And so in this fifth episode of our series, the Becky Nader and I are going to dig into a transformational gift in the kingdom of God. It's called brutal honesty. That sounds like fun, right? <laughs> it's like I said to Becky, we should call this our root canal episode, but actually brutal honesty gets a bad rap and that's what we're going to explore today. Uh, we'll look at a sampling of some brutal honesty encounters Jesus had and how the leverage of brutal honesty transformed and set free the people that he encountered. So Becky Dater, have you had a brutal honesty encounter recently that kind of made a big difference in your life? And by the way, I have to say before Becky opens her mouth here, Becky is one of the most enjoyable brutal honesty people I've ever known in my life. You know that, that what's true is that when you meet an enjoyable, brutal honesty person, they are unforgettable. They are unforgettable because they have a lasting impact because of how honest they are. And that's part of what we're going to explore today. So I can't think of a better person to talk about this with than the Becky Nader. So, hey, have you had a recent brutal, honest encounter that actually made a difference for good in your life? Yeah, you know, I've mentioned just that earlier, well, actually, I guess later in last year, I went through a time where I just, I ran out of my reserve and I was, I just basically was going through probably the darkest season of my life. And I was really blinded by that, by a ton of fear. I was just living in a black cloud of fear. And a really good friend of mine wrote a brutally honest letter to me. And this letter is so important to me that I actually have it printed out and it's on my refrigerator so I can see it. But it, it was a brutally honest letter. And in that letter, she just explained to me how I wasn't quite myself, that I was acting in ways that were unlike me and that she wanted to take 
some time to point that out to me because she was concerned, but also because she wanted to remind me of who I was. And so she actually outlined in this letter exactly who I am as a reminder so that I could pull myself out of this dark time and stand firmly in who I was again. And this letter, as brutally honest as it was, there was no shame in it. There was no should in it. And it, it's one of the most life and light giving letters I've ever received from anyone. And it was just such a great example to me of how a friend who cared so much about me could point at some of my shadows and say, you've got to get out of this. You have to, get, you have to break this cycle. And I'm here for you to do that. And you can hear and see the redemptive impact that that has when somebody takes the risk to do that in your life. And what's going to be, I think it's good to kick this whole thing off with an interesting twist here too. When we say brutal honesty, we most often think of stories just like yours, Becky, and I have plenty of those kinds of stories too, but we're actually, we're going to talk about stories like those, but we're also going to talk about a different kind of brutal honesty, the kind where people say brutally honest things that are beautiful and true about you. And I was thinking about this the other day that I have a close friend named John who um, sometimes just texts me out of the blue. I had a flip phone or a slide phone. I was like a, you know, a cloistered monk. I didn't want a smartphone. I didn't want a computer in my pocket. And so it was really hard to text me. So I always told my friends, don't text me. But John is the one friend who persisted in texting me anyway. <laughs> he was that kind of guy. And uh, so John has for years just texted me out of the blue. A week or two ago, I got an out of the blue text from John. And all it said was, just wanted to remind you, you are an incredible father. I respect you so much, Rick. That was it. And I just started to cry as soon as I got it because I was just in that moment. I had been in one of those seasons where that every parent has where you just think, I'm the worst. I don't know which end is up. I don't know how to reach my daughter. I, I always say the wrong thing. She's mad at me again. You know, I was in that moment where you wonder what kind of parent you are. And out of the blue, John texts me this. Now that, that's called the spirit of Jesus moving through his body in a brutally honest way. He didn't mince words. He just said what he saw in me. And it meant a lot to me. There are both kinds of brutal honesty. Some that, you know, feel like, feel painful in the moment. And some that feel like, like a massage, <laughs> a really good massage in the moment. So we're going to talk about both kinds, but let's, let's clarify a little bit more about what we mean by brutal honesty. I was just in a conversation today where I brought up the topic of brutal honesty and I was extolling the virtues of it. And this person, this pastor told me, yeah, but uh, sometimes brutal honesty is really destructive. Like sometimes people say things that are brutally honest and they're, they really hurt and there's no good thing about them. And I said, you're, you're totally right. So there's good brutal honesty and there's destructive brutal honesty. And I would say that destructive brutal honesty is relatively unconcerned about the impact on the other. How do you see the difference between these two, Becky? I think one of them gives life to that person and the other one saps energy away from that person. So when, you, when you're giving life back to someone, you're giving them what they need to continue on with courage and with strength, and, and you care about the outcome of that. The other kind 
is stealing energy from them. It's taking energy away from them so that they are they're more defeated when they walk away. They're not able to, well, all you did was just add another boulder to their already heavy load. Yeah, that's good. Um, that's good. Yeah. I wrote a book a while back that I've mentioned before called Shrewd. And it's about the parable of the shrewd manager that Jesus told and how big a deal he made about shrewdness and how much he wanted us to learn more how to be shrewd because he is shrewd. And one of the subtexts in that book is that shrewdness is like a, is like a chainsaw. It's a very powerful thing. It could be used for good or for evil. When it's used for good, it's innocent. It has redemptive energy behind it. When it's used for evil, it has destructive intent behind it. And it can be used for either. And I think of the same way with brutal honesty. It's like a chainsaw. You can use it for good or you can use it for bad. Here's a funny, small example of sort of the difference between the two. My wife, Bev, has been for the last five months or so involved in a new sort of ministry that is now encompassing more and more of her time and attention and focus. She is meeting with and reaching out to and helping refugees. She meets regularly with a Syrian family, and today she met for the first time with an Afghani family, a family whose uh, the father in that family was a translator for the American military in Afghanistan and had to flee the country because he was targeted for assassination because of that. So Bev is meeting with these families, and Syrian family that she's been meeting with for five months, they are about to open their own restaurant, and the wife in this family is an incredible cook. So Bev came home a few months ago and said, oh my gosh, we ate the most incredible food. You should have tasted this dessert. And I'm like, well, where's mine? Why didn't you bring any home? So yesterday, Bev, because she is a brutally honest person and it's good that she is, she told me last night, well, I told Kalud, this wife, that you complained about not getting yours. So she made up a big plate of it for you. And I'm like looking at Bev like, that's not the right kind of brutal honesty. <laughs> don't tell, don't tell Kalud that I said to you that I'm uh, that I wish that I would have gotten some of her food. And Bev just smiled at me. So Bev is an enjoyably brutally honest person, and that's what happens sometimes when you're when you're that way. You say stuff, and later a person like me is like, "What did you say to them?" So I love your definition, Becky, about that it's either life giving or life sucking. I think that's really good. Let's talk about some of the obvious benefits of brutal honesty. I found this little line from a, a blog by writer Nicholas Cole that I just loved. He said, brutal honesty usually means pointing at someone's shadow. And we as a society really, really, really do not like our shadows. What do you think of when I say that, Becky? Well, I think I, I think a couple of things. One, I think that we we have a avoidance culture too that we avoid having these hard conversations because we're afraid of the reaction that we might get. Because sometimes when you're brutally honest for the right reasons, you can still get a negative reaction. So maybe your heart's in the right place. Maybe you genuinely want to help that person, but you can still get a negative reaction from a good, brutal, honest conversation. And so I think we equally don't want people to point out and, and show us kind of our dark spots. And we equally avoid helping other people come into the light 
because we're afraid of having a bad reaction. And insecure, insecurity is fueling both of those things, actually. We don't like having someone point out our shadow because we're so terribly insecure and our identity is, feels to us on a sort of an everyday basis kind of shaky. We, so we don't want people pointing out the things that we already are frustrated with about ourselves or, or even worse, something that we haven't seen yet in ourselves. That just taps into the painful feelings we have around our insecurities if we do, or it will permanently affect the nature of the relationship. So insecurity fuels both sides of that. But I think one thing that's true is that we all function, whether we like it or not, as mirrors in another's life. We are always mirroring reality about who we are and what we are back to the people in our life. We can't help but that's how, it, that's how this whole thing was set up. And Jesus wants to mirror back to us the truth about who we are. The enemy of God wants to mirror back to us the lie about who we are. And there you have the spiritual war that we're in the middle of. So if we all function as mirrors in one another's lives, that makes this question a paramount question. How accurate are the mirrors I'm looking in? And a second question is, is this mirror intent on reflecting back the beauty and hope and redemptive reality of who I am? Or is it intent on killing, stealing, and destroying, which is the job description of Satan? So. Is this mirror accurate, and is this mirror for me or against me as a fundamental posture? So brutal honesty is a gift from a good mirror, and it's a bludgeon from a bad mirror. That, that kind of capsulizes it. So um, one other thing I think that's interesting about, I think this is, uh, I know this is true in my life, and when we accept uh, or invite brutal honesty in our life, we are also at the very moment um, leaning into growth instead of stagnation. In fact, we stop growing when we decide to close down from honest mirrors. Do you, do you have some kind of resonant connection with that, Becky, that a time in your life when you were rapidly growing and part of it was because you were, you were more open or more receiving of uh, brutal honesty or a time in your life when you felt stagnant because you couldn't handle or didn't want or wasn't receiving brutal honesty in your life? Is it, does that resonate anywhere with you? I mean, I think I can could, could identify with all of those examples. I also can say that I've had some examples where I allowed the wrong mirrors to speak identity that was not true into my life. And I accepted that into my identity in a way that made me stop living out my purpose the way that I was supposed to. It yeah. actually paralyzed me or took me down. I probably have more of those kinds of examples actually. And so I think the important thing is that when we decide to allow someone to speak into our life, we get to decide. And, and I think Rick was actually the first person to, to teach me this. And it made me start to have a much higher awareness of the words that I was allowing to have people speak into my life and where they were coming from. So I think that actually for me, my biggest growth in this area was that I used to let everyone tell me who I was. And I believed that everyone knew who I was better than myself. And I wasn't filtering any um, of those identifying words into my life. I was just letting them all come in. You can hear there how precarious that way of living is. You're essentially, you're tying your identity to the wind. 
whichever way the wind is blowing, or in this case, whichever mirror you happen to be looking in. And then I think you can hear in what you're saying too, Becky, that how powerful this reflection is in our life. All of these reflections are in our life. When I said brutal honesty is a chainsaw, it's really true. It can destroy or it can build up. There's no doubt that when you pull the cord on that chainsaw, it has the ability to change, radically change things. So that even more should bring this to the forefront of our mind that it's important to understand the role of brutal honesty in our life. I found this, uh, this, this little account from a writer named David Williams on the, on the website Quora. Uh, and he was writing about this whole aspect of brutal honesty. And I just love this little story he told about uh, a friend of his um, and how his wife and he were talking about um, how and why their friend was so enjoyably brutally honest. Well, how did this guy get away with his brutal honesty and, and have everyone in his life really love and respect and esteem him? So that this is the conversation they were having. Here's the story he tells. Yesterday I was asking Fran, his wife, why people love our good friend Kip Wynn so much. I mean, everyone loves him. And he always says exactly what is on his mind. Like for instance, quote, Dinner sounds great, but Chris has had a rough week and we need a night alone. Ask me again next week, end quote. <laughs> now, David Williams says he didn't say, we have other plans, how about next weekend? And you think, wonderful. And of course, he is exactly this way in more sensitive and difficult situations. He's just on the table always. So I was asking Fran, how does he do this so naturally and why do people love hearing it? And she said, He's the most intensely humble person anyone knows. So he never needs to protect himself. So no one ever assumes anything but his best intentions. He can say anything and it doesn't matter. But he doesn't have to think about it because he is not protecting anything. And that makes him safe. I was just fascinated by this connection between what you might call innocent, humble, brutal honesty and safety. I think that's spot on. When we meet people like this, who are innocently, brutally honest, we feel the safest we've ever felt. Because there's, we don't have to guess, we don't have to wonder where they're coming from, and we, don't, and we know intrinsically they're not trying to spin something, they're just saying what they really believe. And we're surrounded by so much spin that it feels refreshing <laughs> when you find somebody who's not spinning. So let's uh, start off our exploration of Jesus with this obscure little encounter he had with a young man named Nathaniel. We have never focused. I, I can't remember, Becky, that we have, I don't think we've ever focused on Nathaniel on the podcast. No. This is our first yeah. time. This is an interesting little story. We're going to dig deep into his story, and then we're going to skip over to a few sort of likewise edgy interchanges that Jesus had with some others, but we're going to really focus on this one. So just to kind of set this up, Nathaniel in scripture is also called Bartholomew. And I was trying to figure out why does he have two names? And it turns out the, the latter name is a family designation that means son of Tamai. So his family name is Bartholomew, but his, but his everyday name, the name that people called him, was Nathaniel. So his family, by the way, this is interesting. Uh, Nathaniel's family is from Cana, where Jesus did his first sort of water into wine miracle. So uh, I am sure he's probably heard about this guy who did this crazy thing at, the, at this wedding. 
So Nathaniel is good friends with Philip, who was one of the first to commit to following Jesus. And Philip uh, meets Jesus and is just captured by him. And he somehow intrinsically knows this guy's the Messiah. So he goes to find his good friend, Nathaniel, and he finds him sitting under a fig tree, which by the way, that's another thing I learned is sitting under the fig tree is a proper place for where you're, if you were a good, good Jewish young man, you were supposed to sit under the fig tree when you studied the Torah. So Nathaniel is there having his little quiet time under the fig tree, studying the Torah. And the Torah, of course, uh, the plot thickens here, the Torah points to the Messiah. So he's literally reading somewhere in the Torah about the coming Messiah. And Philip stumbles upon him, finds him, and, and basically says, come and see this guy. I think he's the Messiah. So another couple of quick things about Nathaniel is that historians say that Nathaniel, after he became a disciple, later took a copy of Matthew's gospel to northern India. He was the first, he was the first missionary to northern India. And uh, <clears throat> as a result, he was later martyred in Albania. <laughs> he was crucified upside down, which another little interesting sidelight, that phrase crucified upside down probably uh, reminds you that that's how Peter was executed as well at Peter's own request. Remember, Peter said, um, <clears throat> I don't want to be crucified in the same way my beloved was crucified. Do it upside down. And look, here's Nathaniel asking for the same thing. This is extraordinary to me. You're, you're about to face death. And the thing that's top of mind is, I don't want to be crucified in the same way my beloved was. I want to honor him by being crucified upside down. <laughs> okay. Wow. So Nathaniel was one of those who also chose that. So let's read this account of Jesus's encounter with Nathaniel. And then the Becky Nader and I will talk about this. So this is from John chapter one, starting in verse 43. So if you're not driving and you want to flip open your Jesus centered Bible in this section, in my Bible, the, the section heading is called the first disciples. So this is the story of how the first disciples came to follow Jesus. So again, it's John 1, uh, starting in verse 43. Here we go. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, come, follow me. Well, Philip was from Bethsaida, Andrew and Peter's hometown. Well, so Philip went to look for Nathanael, and he told him, we have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nazareth, exclaimed Nathanael, can anything good come from Nazareth? Well, come and see for yourself, Philip replied. As they approached, Jesus said, now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. Uh, how do you know about me? Nathanael asked. Jesus replied, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. Then Nathanael exclaimed, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. Jesus asked him, do you believe this just because I told you I'd seen you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. I tell you the truth. You will all see heaven open and the angels of God going up and down on the son of man, the one who is the stairway between heaven and earth. So he ends this little interchange with a crazy little prophetic vision to Nathanael, but so, Becky Nader, as we l look at this little encounter, what do you notice about the role of brutal honesty in this story? What pops out to you? Well, I, I, I think that he's kind of poking a little bit at his skepticism. So he's, 
he's like just bringing it out into the open. He knows that this guy is a well learned. It's not like it's not like everybody just got to sit around and read the Torah. That wasn't like a, a normal. Everybody got to do that. So I think he knows he's an he's an intelligent guy that he studied and learned, and that he is going to have a little skepticism and maybe needs a little bit of poking at that. And also he's going to need more, more proof. Like yeah. most skeptical people end up wanting. <laughs> and he's not only a skeptical person, he's a sort of a brutal honesty person. The first thing he says is not very, it's, it's not very diplomatic. Can anything come uh, good come out of Nazareth is the sort of thing a brutally honest person says. What's interesting here is that Jesus, now this is part of his supernatural ability he sees Nathaniel under this fig tree. Now, there, it, it seems very sort of benign when we read it in Scripture, but if we notice how Nathaniel responds to it, he is absolutely overwhelmed by this. When Jesus says he saw him under the fig tree, we don't know the context or the greater detail around this encounter. All we know is Nathaniel was absolutely bowled over when Jesus said this. So we, we must assume that Jesus understood what was happening under that fig tree somehow. This idea that nothing good comes out of Nazareth, the first words Jesus speaks to him as he approaches, he's not even met him yet, he labels him with a positive label. He says, now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. He's actually delighting in the brutal honesty of Nathaniel. You know, not everyone does. <laughs> we, Becky, you and I have both experienced, some people love it, especially when it comes from an innocent place, and some people absolutely hate it. Here we have Jesus absolutely loving the brutal honesty of Nathaniel. He wasn't offended. He didn't go, yeah, I heard what you said, Nathaniel, about nothing good coming out of Nazareth. Well, I, I'm here to tell you. He doesn't say anything like that. He just delights in his brutal honesty. And maybe you could even make a case that Jesus invites him into following him because of his brutal honesty, he sees that as a tremendous strength. Anything think, else that pops out there for you, well, Becky? There's a couple of things. Like one, I think that when we talk about brutal honesty, sometimes we, again, like Rick kind of prefaced this at the beginning of the episode, where we think of like the hard things that you don't really want to hear about yourself that maybe you need some growth in. But there's also an opportunity with brutal honesty to point out the really good things about people. And that's what Jesus did here. He pointed out something that was really good about Nathaniel. And when you do that with people, I would just say, take this as a little homework assignment. When you are interacting with people, notice something really significantly good about someone and point it out to them very specifically. And you will be so surprised at how that experience will deepen your relationship with them, deepen your trust with them. And it will also give them so much confidence because we don't, as a society, really take a lot of time. We, we give like fluff back to people, but really uh, try to build people up in a significant way. And I think we're probably gonna, this will come out a little bit in some of the examples we're about to show of other brutal, honest encounters with Jesus. But I love how Jesus likes to have people bring messages that are like culturally insignificant. So I think he, 
because he likes that so much, he probably was like, he liked the fact that Nathaniel was like, what can good, what good can come out of Nazareth? He's probably like, yeah, that's what I love doing. I actually love taking culturally insignificant people and places and things and making them more significant. That's really good. I love that. And the, the thing that you were saying before too, I'd go so far as to say that paying ridiculous attention to others and then speaking out the beauty you taste and experience in them is a spiritual discipline. Mm-hmm. It's not a sidelight. It's not being an encouraging person. It's not any of those things. Those are all shallow versions of what we're talking about here. And we'll explore this toward the end of the podcast, some specific ways that you can grow in this ability to, to notice, then speak out. And it, it's obviously risky because what we're doing when we do that is something that's beyond normal intimacy, beyond normal interaction. It's trying to plant a seed. In fact, when I do this with people, I literally feel like I'm planting a seed in their soul, something that will grow if it's nurtured and grow into a big tree in their life and produce fruit that they can eat from and be nourished by. That's what this is. It's, it's on the level of a spiritual discipline, this kind of brutal honesty. And uh, what's fascinating about this little encounter to me, one of many things, is that Nathaniel apparently in his realization of who Jesus is and what he's able to do, he recognizes that Jesus must have heard the way he talked about Nazareth and must have heard the brutal way that he referred to everything he thought about Nazareth and is suddenly upended. He's suddenly exposed, but he's exposed in a way that Jesus is delighted by. He's not put down or dismantled because of this exposure he's delighted in. And I think this mix from the supernatural Jesus was just, must have been overwhelming for him. He's simultaneously celebrated for his brutal honesty. At the same moment, he's delighted in for who he is. So I think this is a fascinating little story. And uh, one of the big things that we rarely talk about is these encounters Jesus had with people, think about the transformation that is going on here. Nathaniel is about to leave everything he knew in life to pick up and follow Jesus for three years. And then after that, he becomes an apostle and a missionary to the world. His whole life is about to transform, and it hinged on this one little encounter. Same with Philip, same with Peter, same with Andrew. All of these huge transformations in their life hinged on a tiny little encounter with Jesus. That also rings true to me. I can track back through my own life to the tipping points of my life, and I can find these tiny little encounters that changed everything for me in my life with Jesus. One of them, um, I I was going to use this as an example later, but it fits right now. I was in a men's group uh, several years ago, many years ago, that um, was designed to be a brutally honest men's group. And it was led by the most brutally honest man I've ever been around. It was such a scary environment that a lot of men left that group. And I've talked about this experience before. So there was a lot on the line in this men's group. You never knew when someone was going to say something that was gonna point out your shadow. In fact, that group should have been called pointing out your shadows. (laughs) It should have been called that. So obviously that's a scary environment to be in. I was simultaneously scared and drawn to this environment at the same time. So there was one night where uh, we were going around the circle sharing about something, and uh, I had said something, 
and the leader stopped and said, hey, what do the rest of you guys think about what Rick just said? And a guy next to me that I knew fairly well from church said, you know, I experience you like you're a fog. I have to try to see you through the fog to see how clear you are because you put out stuff that's like a fog machine. Now, imagine sitting in my shoes like, okay. So you have to think that here's what happens. Two things happen in you. Um, ouch, uh, obviously. And then is it true? Is this true? And at this time in my life, that guy was exactly right. It actually led to massive change in my life. I, I did not realize that to protect my vulnerable soul, especially when I was treading on very vulnerable territory for me, that I would unconsciously spin stuff and make my descriptions of things sort of fuzzy and uh, vaguely positive. I did not realize I was doing that and I did not realize why I was doing it. So when this guy said, this is how I experience you, it helped me to look at something I had never even known I was doing. And then deeper than that, why do I do this? Why am I a fog machine around people sometimes? I had to embrace the truth that my own brokenness, my own pain had caused me to use safety mechanisms that kept people from knowing who I really am, that kept them at arm's length, and I didn't know I was doing it. So that's an example of this same kind of brutal honesty that Jesus used and it's an example of how Nathaniel talked. I mean, uh, can anything good ever come out of Nazareth is about as blunt as you can get. And Jesus, not to be outdone, is blunt right back. He used the same currency that Nathaniel used with him. He spoke back brutal honesty, and in this case, life-giving honesty. So we have a few other uh, examples of this. I promised we'd kind of skip around to a, a few other examples where Jesus was likewise brutally honest. And uh, I just listed a, a few. There's so many. We could go on and on about them, but here's, here's a few. Remember that encounter in Acts chapter 10 that Peter has on the roof of the house he's staying in. He goes up there to pray. And meanwhile, some pagan visitors are about to arrive. They're Gentiles. And they've been sent by the Spirit of Jesus to come invite Peter to their town and tell the town about Jesus. Well, Peter, having grown up an observant Jew, is really has nothing to do with Gentiles at this point. At this juncture in his trajectory, the message that he's been given, he's only thinking of giving this message to Jews. And here he is praying on the rooftop, and he, he goes into this sort of trance or vision where this sheet comes down from the heavens, and there's all these unclean animals reptiles and other things that are in this sheet. And he hears the voice of Jesus say, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter resists and says, no, no, I, I have never eaten these unclean foods and I'm not going to start now. But it happens three times. Three times the voice of Jesus says, kill and eat, Peter. And then the vision goes away. And then right as the vision goes away, these pagan guys arrive at his house. And basically what Jesus is trying to say is, hey, Peter, Get past your racism. <laughs> Get past the uh, certain way of thinking in a black and white way that you have about Jews and Gentiles. Because, buddy, this message is for Gentiles and Jews alike. 
and this is your baptism of fire. <laughs> I've brought these guys to your house, and I want you to go with them. And it's funny, if you follow the story in Acts 10, he does go with them. And when he gets there, he says in his own simply childlike, honest way, hey, I didn't really want to do this. <laughs> um, I don't ever do this. But I'm only here because Jesus made it clear that this is what he wants me to do. So talk about getting in your face about your inbred beliefs about things. Have you ever had a moment like this, Becky, where, oh my gosh, this is like a, almost an unimaginable moment of brutal honesty where somebody said something really inappropriate and you had to say something back that exposed how inappropriate that was? Have you ever done that? I don't know if I'm very good at that. I would say that I'm probably more one of those per people that would kind of process and then maybe go later and talk to that person. I have a hard time. And, and when Rick and I were talking about this ep episode, I said, you know, we're going to do an episode on, on brutal honesty. The two of us are really on one side of the fence, right? Like we both <laughs> are known for being a little bit maybe overly brutally honest. But everyone has their kind of sensitivity levels there. I think that I would tend to just kind of maybe bear and grin and not say anything, especially if it was like a social environment, and then really, you know, have to think and pray about confronting that person later about it. But I know, I mean, I've been in situations, Rick, where you will call things out on the table just right there and then. So, and then there's other people who will just let it go. They're just, they're not going to even yeah. go there. They're and it, it's, a, it's a great point to bring up too, because there's no formula here. Mm -hmm. This is situational and we're guided by the spirit in whatever situation we're in. And I was just telling somebody today about something that happened in my uh, sort of home church for young people that I have every Tuesday night. This last Tuesday, a girl in the group said something that was obviously off when she said it. So when you're leading a group like this, you have to determine how am I going to deal with this? She just said something that's obviously off. Well, I was telling this person today, in that group, um, it's situational how I respond to that. For one, for I'm thinking of a few kids in my head right now. If they had said that, I would have directly and maybe in a in a kind of a fun way confronted them about it. <laughs> I would have I would have joked with them, but I would have been serious about confronting what they just said. So it would have been a direct challenge from me with certain kids in that group. But this particular girl, I intrinsically sensed, I'm too much for her. She can't really handle me directly challenging her about this. So I invited the whole group. I said, what do you guys think about what she just said? What, are the, what do you resonate with? What do you not resonate with? And then the group chimed in and she could hear a correction from the group much better than she could hear it from me. So that comes only by paying attention to your own soul into the spirit and paying attention to other people so that you know when is the right time to say it right now and when is the right time to say it later if you're so led. So another one of these encounters that was obviously a brutal encounter, brutal honesty encounter was with uh, in John 4 with Jesus and the woman at the well. When woman first thinks she's all confused because he asked for a, a bucket of water and she's like, why are you asking me? Do you know who I am? And he starts talking about living water, and she's like, hey, give me some of that, but you don't have a bucket, so how are you going to get it? And this confusing interchange keeps happening, and finally, Jesus says, hey, why don't you go get your husband and come here 
and we'll talk some more. And she says, well, I don't have a husband. Oh, here comes brutal honesty. Yeah, that's right. You don't have a husband and you've been married, you've been married five times and you're just living with the guy that you're with now. Whoa. <laughs> and he uses this brutally honest moment with this woman to snag her. It's like that is the thing that really captures her. From this point on, she's like, whoa, who is this guy? She could have walked away. She could have said, who do you think you are? Instead, she stays at the well. So I think it's because Jesus studies her. He studies every person in front of him. And sometimes brutal honesty is the best hook. Anything about that story that you think about, uh, Becky, when we're thinking about brutal honesty and how we respond to it and whether we invite or not that? Well, I mean, I, when I hear stories like this, I always wonder about the stories that we don't know where somebody did say that back to Jesus. Like, get away from me. I don't want to talk to you. Yeah. Um, because there had to have been times where, you know, maybe there weren't because he's so, you know, the Holy Spirit embodied. But I think that that's exactly why we would be afraid to have that kind of conversation with somebody is because I think we would be afraid that they would have a very negative reaction to it and that they wouldn't really see that where our heart was. And I think that Jesus was just an expert at, at knowing when was the right time to use brutal honesty. And when was the, he also had other times where he was so gentle and he was so cautious with people. So here is the beautiful reality of the gospel. This is the gospel right here that when you say, Becky, Jesus was an expert at this. He was a wonder at this. We have the spirit of Jesus in us. We don't have the excuse any longer to say, well, that's Jesus for you. He said, the reason I'm going to the cross is so that I can be in you and you can be in me. We have the spirit of Jesus in us. It's just a question of whether we learn and grow in our practice of depending on him and being sensitive to him. Like anything else in life, the more you practice something, the more sensitive you become in it. Riding a bike when you're on this side of being able to ride a bike seems impossible. It's like, how could anyone ever, there's all these people riding bikes around and sometimes they ride them up mountains. How is that possible? It doesn't seem possible when you're just trying to learn how to ride a bike. But the more you ride the bike, the more sensitive you become to how that bike works. And pretty soon you might be able to ride that bike up a mountain too. So the more we practice trying to listen and act upon the nudges we get from Jesus in these situations, the more sensitive we become. The last one I thought would be interesting to, to take a quick look at here is from John chapter 13, when Jesus is at the last supper with his disciples and he's predicting that he's going to be betrayed. And uh, I just thought I'd read this little section real quick. It starts in verse 21. Jesus was deeply troubled, and he exclaimed, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. There's some brutal honesty. The disciples looked at each other, wondering whom he could mean. The disciple Jesus loved, John himself, was sitting next to Jesus at the table. Simon Peter motioned him to ask, who's he talking about? So that disciple leaned over to Jesus and asked, Lord, who is it? Jesus responded, it's the one to whom I give the bread I dip in the bowl. And when he had dipped it, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. When Judas had eaten the bread, Satan entered into him. Then Jesus told him, hurry and do what you're going to do. <laughs> I love that. Hurry up and do what you're going to do. 
And then he first starts off this whole sequence by announcing to everyone, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. This would have been a moment where 99.9% .9 of us spin the truth. We do something else. We don't announce to the whole group, hey, one of you guys, you're going to betray me. So in this case, the brutal honesty was meant to expose, to surface the cancer that was about to appear in this community of close fellowship with these guys. They had, remember, been together for three years. So this is like a lightning bolt into the middle of their community. Jesus is a lightning bolt. So we have so many examples of Jesus situationally using his brutal honesty. He freely expresses it, by the way, because he has nothing to hide, nothing to protect, and nothing that can be leveraged in him. Just give you an example of this. This is David Williams again, the guy that I said wrote a piece on the website Quora. Um, he, he's trying to explore with his wife, remember, how some people can be brutally honest and be beloved because of it. So they're trying to figure out what separates one person from another. He had a, a second proposition that he put out in his blog piece for why some people are not only good at this, but are seen as wonderful companions, even though they're brutal, brutally honest. So here's what he says. If we want to be more honest, our hearts and minds exactly on the table all the time, the way to do that is to have nothing to protect. Aspiring to honesty is great, but willpower to be more honest is fruitless. You have to change the core motivations. I think that's so true. And if you think about this in the context of Jesus, his core motivation, Becky, how would you describe Jesus's core motivation? I mean, if you had to say it in one sentence, what is Jesus's core motivation? He wants to set captives free. He wants there to you set have you it. free from what you're, whatever it is. And I think what I hear right there when we, when we say that we have to change our core motivations, what that means is that if you, if you go to somebody and you have a brutal, brutally honest conversation that's in the right place and for the right reasons, and it's designed to set that person free and to shine light on the situation and let them get out of their cage and move on with their life and claim their purpose, and they reject you, you have to be careful not to take that rejection into yourself. And when you don't have the core motivation of, I need to be, I need their reaction to feed my ego back. And you say, it doesn't matter if this person rejects me or if they accept what I have to say, I'm unchanged. My identity is unchanged. My core motivation for this conversation is unchanged. So when you don't, what that does is it removes that fear of not going in the first place and having the conversation because you know that it is not your job to change this person. It is not your job for them to accept anything that you have to say. Your ego and your motives are out of it. And when you can do that, you can really freely have powerful conversations with people and they will sense that. They will sense that no matter what kind of reaction I give you, it doesn't matter to you. That's not why you're here. And you're talking about really counting the cost as you move into this, but it's when I say that, it, I mean something deeper than you might think. Counting the cost here means, will I love or not? Will I love or not? And love in these cases sometimes means, will I say or do the most loving thing for this person, no matter whether they perceive it as love or not? 
will I do it? So the question comes down to, do I love people or not sometimes in these situations? And so when we're giving and receiving brutal honesty and we think about what's involved in it and when we would do it and when we wouldn't, there's a kind of brutal honesty that prunes kind of like what we're talking about right now. It cuts things. And then there's a kind of brutal honesty that sort of fertilizes. It helps things grow. And w these are, these are great metaphoric ways of thinking about this because Jesus used botanical metaphors all the time. He used pruning statements, and we've seen some of those just now. And he also used the other kind, the growth-oriented, fertilizing kinds of brutal honesties that make you think about the parable of the four soils, for instance. Three soils that are bad, but one that don't grow anything, and one that's really good, that grows stuff. But when Jesus was being brutally honest in a fourth soil way, things grew. So uh, I thought Becky and I could tell a few stories here. And one I think of with brutal honesty that prunes that where I offered something because I loved these people. In the same week, I had two different friends in two different places in, in the United States ask me to give them feedback on their creative work. One of them was a book by a first-time author and he had been talking about it to me before and telling me that he wanted to send it to me for my perspective on it because he had finished the book. Uh, he had, had no publisher for it. He was just working on this book. He didn't do what normal authors do where they propose a book and then see if they can get it published and then they work on the book. He had written the whole book and he wanted to get my perspective on it. The other friend is a filmmaker kind of on the side and he had created a documentary and he asked, he gave me a private link to see his, his finished documentary and asked me, what do you think? Now, inherent in their both requests, if you're a creative person, you know what I'm about to say is true. Inherent in both of their requests is they're thinking, Rick, I'd like to show you my work so that you can give me some feedback. And God, you better give me positive feedback. Please, please, please enjoy this work that has taken so much of my life to produce. Please enjoy it. So you feel the latent pressure to celebrate whatever it is they've done. And for me, as also an artist and a person who writes and creates things, I know how much has gone into these things. Even it doesn't sometimes matter whether the thing turns out incredible or terrible. The level of effort put into it could be the same. So I'm very aware of this. So to the first friend, I read, his, I read about the first three chapters of his book, and my response to him was detailed. So when I respond to somebody in a creative environment who has asked for input, and I know that part of my input needs to be brutally honest, I get very specific. I don't want to speak in generalities when I'm doing this, because then that gets to the person's identity instead of their work. I hope that makes sense. So I gave him brutally honest but very specific feedback on his book and said if you want someone to publish this book it will have to be written much more concisely much more simply and many more stories in here or people will not read this and there are some things in this book that are common knowledge that are common sense people read books because they want to go oh my gosh never thought of that before or, wow, that's an interesting way of looking at that. Or, wow, that was really wise. They want to have that sort of thing happening inside of them. So if you write things that most people already know, 
then you're immediately turning them off. So I said some things like this and gave him examples. And he was incredibly gracious in his response to me. He was grateful that I told him what I thought. I don't know if he's still going to try to get that book published, if he's going to rework it. I don't know. That's not my responsibility from that point. But my filmmaker friend, I watched his documentary and I wrote him again very specifically and said, here is what I loved about your film and here is what's wrong with your film. And I was very specific. Well, then I heard nothing from him. And eventually he got back to me and he said basically that my feedback had crushed him that they had spent so much time and were, had so many hopes and dreams relative to this. And if they were gonna follow my perspective, they would have to go back and re-edit their film and change things about their film and even reshoot some scenes. And I said, I get it. I totally get it. But I'm just telling you what I think will help this to be successful. It's up to you as to whether you wanna do this or not. Well, eventually a couple months later, he told me that he was able to get investors who helped to fully fund the documentary. And so what he had thought with my feedback was, I'm never gonna get that unless I do what Rick says and I can't imagine doing it. So then he went out and found people still that wanted to invest in his film and he told me so. So it was kind of like, I don't think he meant to say this, but he was kind of saying, look, you were wrong. I could get support for my film just the way it is. So we have to be willing to accept whatever consequence comes when we make the decision to love people in this way and hope that the strength of our relationship will make it through the pruning process. What about you, Becky? What's an example of when you gave some brutal honesty and what happened? So I have a different kind of example. My sister just recently, she's fostering two young boys out of the foster care system. They're going to be moving forward to adopt those two boys. And she doesn't have any other kids. So she went from, I've never been a parent to, I've, she's now been a parent for four months to two young boys. Within a month of them adopting them, their biological mother overdosed and died. So these boys have been bounced through homes. They were promised at one point a permanent adoption and that fell through at the last minute after living with that family for a year. They've gone through a lot and they have a lot of the very normal attributes that come with taking in these kinds of kids. My sister has a master's in psychology and she works with troubled youth. So this, she's like, if, if anybody could be an expert at, at doing this, this is her. And so I got to spend some time with her over the holidays and meet uh, my nephews for the first time. And we were sitting, having dinner, and she was just telling me how challenging things had been. And I could tell that she was almost in a posture where she felt like maybe she was defending some of her parenting choices. I know from going through foster care training that foster care parents often get more feedback, negative feedback about their parenting style because it's so different from parenting a normal child. And it looks so different to everybody. And everybody who's been a parent for, a for longer wants to tell you how you could be doing it better because they think they're helping. And so I could just see this like tension in her and she just was trying so hard. And I just looked at her and I said, you're doing an incredible job. And she just released everything. I could just see like in her entire demeanor, like everything just like, she just calmed down. And I just, I was like, you know that you're doing an incredible job. You are doing an incredible job. And sometimes when we're brutally honest with people, I wasn't saying that because I just thought, oh, I'll just tell her that. I had just witnessed her and her husband 
doing an incredible job in very challenging situations. And because I have been through the foster care system, I know how hard this kind of parenting is, especially for the first few years. But she needed to hear that. And so sometimes brutal honesty is about pruning and sometimes it's about giving life back to people. Yeah, um, and you know, there is something similar in, in both forks in the road there. The, the similarity is that you're paying attention. I don't mean that in a light way. I mean that we're studying, we're paying attention to the nuances. We are forming a sense of our experience of the person. And then, as you said earlier, Becky, we speak it out. And we speak it out in kind of a, I would say, a surgical way. It has to be very specific. If it's general, then it's seen as simply affirmation or encouragement. But if it's specific, what it does is it says you're paying close attention and then you're assessing that thing that you see in a beautiful way. Oh, it must be true. It's the attention to the specifics that really gets to the core of the person. I can think of something that somebody said about me this last week. I won't even say what the situation was because it would be too hard to explain it. But this person was so specifically for me in a tense group situation. His comment to me cost him something. He took a risk when it wasn't sort of the right thing to say in that moment. He took a risk to see something about me and celebrate it in the midst of that tense moment. After this was over, I stopped him to tell him how much that impacted me and I started to cry. Because when people do that, they prove they're paying attention and they're enjoying something about you at a deep level. So many people have never been enjoyed in a specific way by anybody in their life. This is why I said this is almost like a spiritual discipline in our life, a kind of practice that becomes normal for us. If we look now at the other side of this, receiving brutal honesty in our life, not just giving it, um, what does that look like? I Just thinking about this the other day, I was struggling with something. I was really wrestling inside with something. I felt kind of under the gun, I guess is a way of saying it, like, I felt a lot of pressure inside because of expectations of others. And I, I felt the narrative that was going on inside of me is I can never meet the, all of the expectations of everyone in my life. And I was just feeling discouraged. And so I turned to Jesus and I said, Jesus, do you have, if you've listened to the podcast for a while, I play a, a little game that I call playing the Psalm game with Jesus. I just ask him, would you give me a number? for a, a psalm. And the psalms go up to, I think, 151. So I just ask him, put a number in my head, Jesus, a chapter and verse, and I'll go look at that psalm, and we'll play in this way. So I asked him, Jesus, I need your perspective on what I'm struggling with right now. Would you just put a number in my head? So it was 146.3 was the number. So I went to Psalm 146.3, and then I read all the way to verse 5 because it was part of one thought. Here's what it said. Remember the context of what I was struggling with. Here's what Psalm 146, 3 through 5 says. Don't put your confidence in powerful people. There is no help for you there. When they breathe their last, they return to the earth and all their plans die with them. But joyful are those who have the God of Israel as their helper, whose hope is in the Lord their God. What he's really saying, so this is so beautiful that Jesus was saying this to me. Don't give those powerful people in your life power. They don't have the power to come and help you and be your strength and hope. Don't rest 
your hope and your belief in the powerful people of your life, whoever those powerful people are. There's going to be no help for you there. Turn to me for that kind of help, Rick. So he's really saying at that moment, hey, Rick, stop looking at those mirrors. Turn your attention and look at mine. I, I need you to look and see yourself in me right now, not in them. Well, that is a brutally honest thing to say to me in that moment, and it set me free. It was um, decaptivating, I guess, if you want to say it. What about you, Becky? When have you received kind of a, a brutal honesty that turned into good fruit for you? You've mentioned a couple stories already. Yeah, I mean, I, I shared the story at the beginning that I think was just such a, a great example of it. I I unfortunately, I think, have more examples of bad experiences where people, I unfortunately in my life, I haven't had as many people who did things the right way. And I think I have way more examples of my own self falsely pruning myself. (laughs) Um, I think I've talked about this before. Man, I have the, I've had the worst inner critic living with me for most of my life. And some of you might even identify that with that as well. But I think the the thing I wanna say, cause I know we're gonna have to wrap up here is that, that when someone is pruning you in the right way, even if it's a, it's a hard thing that they have to say to you, pay attention to a few things. First of all, are they giving you permission to accept what they have to say? Or are they telling you that you have to accept it? Another thing to look for is, is the way that they're going about giving you this advice, shaming you further into it? Or are they, they saying, of course, I completely understand why you're, you're going through this. Look at the circumstances of your life. I'm not here to shame you. I'm here to, to provide support for you. It's okay that you're in this situation. And then are they doing this in a way where they're offering to shed light on your story so that you can walk out of darkness with them? Oftentimes when people are kind of just like flippantly pruning you, they're not offering to walk through it with you. And, you know, part of this letter from my friend, she said, I can see how dark things are. And I want you to know I'll sit in the dark with you and I'll walk with you until you get out of it. And so when somebody is offering, if if they're gonna take this risk, then they're partnering with you to help you out of it. They're not gonna just throw it out there and then leave you. So I think as we all kind of learn to to wrestle with what mirrors do we listen to and what ones do we not listen to, I think those are really good ways to kind of, to evaluate whether or not this is coming from the right place. Jesus said, Nobody puts a lamp on the top of a hill and puts a bushel over it to hide the light. Look, gang, we are surrounded by people. What Becky just shared is universal. All of us have an inner critic that is harsh, and we get enough harshness around us every single day, and we have an enemy who intends to destroy us by going after our identity. We have a lot arrayed against us. Don't hide your light under a bushel. Take the bushel off and be a light in people's lives, it should actually cost you something when you do this. When you pay attention and then speak out in a risky way the beauty that you experience, it should cost something because it, it's costly. But this is our calling as lights that don't put bushels over ourselves. We become light in other people's lives and we become a source of truth in their lives 
in some cases, it's going to be a shocking truth. Some people will never have heard the beauty that you point out. So pay attention, figure out what it is you're experiencing in that person, and then speak it out or communicate it in some way. It's not always spoken. You could write it in a card. You could email it. You could text it. Whatever way you do, express it. Don't hold it inside. Don't put a bushel over it. Well, gang, thanks for listening today. Remember, you can find out more information, but in further detail on the Pain Ridiculous Attention to Jesus.com website. Just find our podcast section. And you're looking for season four, episode five. There'll be links to the things we mentioned today right there that you can find them. And don't forget, if you want to give a good gift via a light without a bushel over it to a friend of yours, get a copy of the Jesus Center Bible and give it to them. It may be the greatest gift you ever give. This is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, a podcast from Lifetree. You can subscribe to us on iTunes for all the latest podcasts. And we'll talk again in two weeks with the Becky Nader. Next week, you'll be stuck with me and or somebody I decide to interview. Who knows? It's a mystery. See you again soon. Bye, Becky Nader. Bye.